0: many have said, and it's often said, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And all of us experience that every single week when we hop on the 405, when we've made weekend plans, right? It's gonna be different this time. No, it's not. It's gonna take you twice as long, I promise you. But we do it, we do it every single time. The question that we have this morning is Is that what we are doing when we pray? When we pray for the same thing over and over again, and it seems like nothing is happening? Is that what Jesus is asking his disciples to do in this passage? He tells us what he wants from us at the very beginning of the passage. This is one of the only parables or stories from Jesus in the New Testament where it says exactly what he's hoping to produce from the story right before he even says it. He says he told them a story, a parable, to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart, not give up. But this is exactly what we do. We give up. I've tried it. I've prayed I've done it over and over again. It doesn't work. That yeah, I'm done. And the judge in the story that Jesus told, some translations say that he refused what the widow was asking him for, which was justice. Some translations say that he ignored the widow's request. And some of us are sitting here this morning asking the question of ourselves, is that what God does to us when we pray? So to produce this result that Jesus wanted to, ha- to produce in his followers, this desired result of persistence in prayer, Jesus does not command them to persist and say, stop whining, just pray, nor... Does he explain the intricacies of how prayer is answered and then the Trinity and how God categorizes prayer and stuff like that? And so if you don't see any results by next Tuesday, please try getting on your knees next time and we'll see what happens and then you can do the hokey pokey and turn yourself around. No, God does not want us to do that. To get at his friends' hearts, Jesus tells a story to show a vivid picture of what our prayer life can look like if we don't give up. The judge refuses to answer. The widow pesters him relentlessly. And he finally gives her what she asks him for. So what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that we have to bug God all the time? No. To pray in this way, to continue praying when it's, it looks like absolutely nothing is changing... We have to understand a few central things, what we're going to look at this morning. We have to understand what we are praying for, who we are praying to, who we are, and how we approach God. So first of all, what are we praying for? It's not just anything, okay? It can't just be like, whatever you want, God is saying, if you bug him long enough, he'll say, okay, fine, I'll give it to you. Keep on asking God enough times. If you ask him enough times, he'll give you whatever we want. Like that annoying kid at the grocery store asking his mom for ho-hos. Mom, can I just please have some ho That was me, by the way, growing up. Mom, everybody needs more ho-hos. That's my (laughs) firm belief. So, no, the, the context of this parable is not just asking God, you know, whatever you want, he'll give it to you. The context is actually about the return of Jesus, If you look at verse 8, at the last verse of the parable, it says, I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So the context of praying to God persistently is actually God's sending of his Son and the return of Jesus looking towards the end when Jesus returns. And he's asking his disciples not to lose heart because of the delay of Jesus' return. Just before Jesus tells this parable, he teaches them about what things will start to look like before he comes back. We believe that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again on the third day and then he ascended into heaven and that right now he is seated at the right hand of God and that one day he will return and make everything right. And he was teaching his disciples about this reality just before this parable. But what he's saying is that the conditions of the world just before Jesus' return will not be very conducive to the kind of faith that he's calling us to. It's going to be difficult. Luke chapter 17, verse 26, just before this parable, it says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. These are some harsh words from Jesus, but what it's saying is some people think that the world will be in such an obvious state of crisis before Jesus comes back. But the Bible says it will actually be much less obvious. While God's people are waiting for him to return, things are actually not going to hell in a handbasket, like most people think, right? Actually, people who are waiting for Jesus are going to be waiting while everyone around them is having the time of their lives. And the people who are waiting for Jesus to return with an expectant heart will look like the stupidest, most boring, regressive people on the planet because they can't just sit back and enjoy the beauty all around them. Because they won't treat themselves, they will deny themselves. Because they don't listen to their hearts, they preach to their hearts. And they're in a prayer meeting on a Friday night instead of, at the club <laughs> or on Tinder. And for some people, this time of waiting and looking foolish because we are waiting will prove too difficult. The greatest danger during this time of waiting for the return of Jesus is not of the world exploding into some like apocalyptic chaos, but of being too discouraged, or more probably, too distracted. Maybe our visions of the apocalypse or the end need to look a lot less like the Left Behind series and a lot more like the movie Her. That's right, I said Her. You know the one with, with Joaquin Phoenix? Right, where he's like addicted to his smartphone very literally because his smartphone is an AI female and he's like all into her and she's like talking in his ear and they have full-on conversations. And the reality is that everyone is in this weird relationship with their smartphone, and they're walking down the streets ignoring one another in a beautiful Los Angeles, right? Always the scene of the apocalypse, Los Angeles. (laughs) They're walking down the streets of Los Angeles ignoring one another, totally zoned in to their smartphones. And there's a great um, passage in a book from an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers, and he's commenting on this very reality, being connected to an apocalyptic vision. And he says this, it's a long quote, but bear with me. He says, no one is speaking. Everyone stares intently at their phone. Human interaction has disappeared and the public square has died. A fiery comet has not dropped from the sky, nor has a terrorist mastermind set off a dirty bomb, nor has Godzilla descended upon the city in vengeance. Yet, an apocalypse of sorts has occurred. No one can see it because the city still stands. The lights blink, and the buildings, like the people, are still beautiful. Structurally, the culture stands, yet emotionally, socially, and spiritually, it is disappearing. It is a kind of beautiful apocalypse a beautiful, designed public space in which individuals seek autonomy and freedom only to become paralyzed and anxious. Does this sound familiar? So Jesus asks, what will you be doing? What will his people be doing when he returns? Will we be crying out for justice day and night? Or will we be complaining about the new iPhone update? (laughs) What do we pray for? Are we praying to God for comfort or justice? Four times in the passage that we read, it says the widow is pleading for justice. The question is, or the suggestion is rather, maybe our frustration with prayer is often an unwillingness to have our prayers shaped by God's agenda rather than our own. We need to be able to admit that God, who is our Heavenly Father, knows what we do need and what we don't need. In the book of James, it says, you have not because you ask not, and when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Some of us can relate to that. Through our prayer life, God is training us to ask for the things that reflect His heart and His agenda and not our own. And for some of us, our prayers can actually be another way of trying to control our circumstances. Praying for things that aren't bad, but that the goal is not to grow or become more of who God wants us to be. The goal is to be safe. The goal is to be comfortable. But God cannot and will not be controlled by our prayers. Listen, his his delay to acquiesce to our desires is not his failure to answer. So what do we do? Do we just not pray for anything because our motives are so in conflict and twisted within us? No, absolutely not. Our prayers for our immediate desires and needs are actually essential because they bring us near to God. Even if we don't understand the big picture and what is best for us in the long term, God wants us to draw near to him so that our desires can be shaped by him. So my daughter, uh, Nora, she's seven years old. Finally, it happened last week. She asked me for an iPhone. (laughs) One of her friends at school has an iPhone, it's, it probably like doesn't have any network connection or anything at all, but it has like a few apps and she's playing with it after school and she's like, I want an iPhone and she comes to me and she says, Daddy, Layla has an iPhone, I want an iPhone too, please get it for me because you love me. <laughs> now, <laughs> do I love my daughter? Of course I do. Do I love her more or less by not getting her an iPhone? Probably more, right? (laughs) Will she know the benefit of being denied this desire right now? No. (laughs) But I will give and withhold what I know is best for her because she's unable to make that distinction for herself. But the last thing that I would want is for her to keep from me what she really wants. I want her to come to me. I want her to ask. We don't get to the place where we are asking God for the things that he wants to give us by concealing the things that we want him to give. That is where we start. Author Paul Miller says of this reality, he says, all of Jesus' teaching on prayer in the Gospels can be summarized with one word, Ask. His greatest concern is that our failure or reluctance to ask keeps us distant from God. His primary concern was to get us into the game. So we need to understand that our desires need to be shaped by God in order for this reality of persistence in prayer to happen. But we also need to to understand rather who we are praying to. Because a lot of us relate to God like this unjust judge in the story. Read again with me verse two of chapter 18. It says, he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And what Jesus is teaching us through this is that the most groundbreaking truth that can change how and why we pray, is who we believe we are praying to. Not only do our thoughts and beliefs about God change the way we approach him in prayer, it changes how we interpret the results of how life plays out after we have prayed. If we can't see the direct and immediate results of how God interacts with our prayers, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to look for signs? Are we supposed to like will ourselves into believing that our prayers are being answered? Those of us who don't believe in God or trust him see this lack of immediate correspondence as evidence that God either doesn't exist, some of us believe that, or that he just doesn't care. The break in the chain of cause and effect in prayer causes some to dismiss prayer as a premise as just mere wishful thinking. But those who might believe prayer is like nonsense or just wishful thinking have a bit of trouble with what this means. It means that we have nothing to do with the desires that might lead us to yearn for something beyond what we ourselves are capable of producing. What do you do when you want something you know you are powerless to bring about yourself? The healing of a relationship, maybe, or to have a a sense of purpose or meaning in life, a way out of your circumstances, or freedom. What do we do when we know we can't produce those results? If you don't believe in prayer, you can do nothing. The only alternative to prayer is that everything depends on you and maybe luck. If you want something to happen, you have to make it happen. And this is tremendous pressure. If prayer is fake, then we have no basis to believe that there is anything or anyone beyond ourselves working for our benefits. It all depends on us. But if God does exist and can hear your prayers, what is this God like? Is he good, but he's powerless to do anything about our prayers? Oh, like I wish I could help, but my hands are tied, sorry. Or maybe he can do everything, but he just doesn't want to, like the judge in this story. Most people believe some form of one of these errors, Even Christians and those who say they have a relationship with God relate to him based on these equal but opposite errors. Theologically speaking, either God is omnipotent or all-powerful or just benevolent or good. And the story that Jesus tells presents a caricature of God that many of us are prone to believe. And we need to admit that this affects our prayer life. We need to admit that our view of God has been constructed through a series of disappointments. Whether that's authority figures in our life who has let us down, or unjust things that we've had happen to us. But we are not promised some things Listen, God will always break a promise that he never made to us. And if we pray for comfort only, he didn't promise us that. Just as this passage said, when things are going down, before Jesus returns, when things get very difficult, he does not promise a life free of hardship. In the context of this passage, before the parable, Those who wait for the return of Jesus are promised an incredibly difficult road. And last week, Pastor Adam, who is our visiting uh, speaker, challenged us to recognize that the God that we pray to is both near to us and powerful. That if he was near but not powerful... We might as well pray to the person next to us because they have just as much control over the world. And if he is all powerful, but he is not with us, we might as well just wish that within ourselves because we would have no confidence that he would listen or even care. But God is both near to us and powerful. Read with me again verses six and seven. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over him? So the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. The lesser being the unjust judge, the greater being God. He's saying if this judge, who was bugged over and over again by this widow, finally gave in, how much more will your heavenly Father who loves you give you everything that you need. There's another version of this argument earlier in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11 when Jesus says, what father among you if he asks his son for a, or if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, thanks Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He is not an unjust judge. He is our heavenly father. And we need to understand that he is a father who loves us and a just judge who knows the correct verdict. But we also need to understand who we are in this story. Read verse 3 with me again. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Why did Jesus choose to make the character in the story a widow? It's because this is somebody who was deserving of having an audience with the judge and who was not receiving it. She's a sympathetic character. Because in, in the Torah, in the law of Moses, the law of Israel that was governing at that time, it stated that the responsibility of judges and rulers in the land was to ensure that widows were being cared for. Every time in the Torah it said that This is what justice looks like. Widows and orphans were right there in the mix. So this would have produced a righteous indignation in people who were listening to Jesus' parable, that the widow was not being cared for by this judge, that she was being ignored. The widow came to the judge for justice because that is what judges are supposed to do, but he failed to do his job. And both his lack of care and his delay in doing his job are exactly the characteristics that we ascribe to God in prayer when we get frustrated. This is what makes us so angry and confused when our prayers aren't being answered. God, don't I belong to you? Don't you care about me? The delay in justice must be due to either his lack of concern or his inability to do it. We see injustice in the world and we say, God, do do something. If you cared, you would do something. Or some who don't believe that God exists, if there was a God, he would care enough to do something. But most of us who follow this line of reason don't think about where it ends. We don't really think about what it would mean if justice was truly served and that we would find ourselves on the wrong side of it. We likewise believe that we deserve an audience with God, but the reality is that we are a lot less like this widow in the story than we'd like to believe. Because Scripture does portray God as a judge, but as a just judge who knows the right time and manner to give justice. And the problem is that we have less in common with the widow in the story than with the adversary that she is crying out for justice against. This means that the time between God's people crying out for justice and when justice is served is not a lack of concern on God's part. It is patience. Patience. Because of our sin, if God were to bring justice right now, we would find ourselves on the wrong side. We need to see that we have more in common with the adversary and perhaps even with the unjust judge in the story. Because of sin, our rebellion against God, a God who created us and who loves us and whose power sustains our lives at this very moment, we do not deserve an audience With him. And right now, he is showing us patience, giving us an opportunity to know and trust in Jesus. In the New Testament, in the book of Peter, this is exactly what it says It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance we do not deserve an audience with the judge but he is giving us this opportunity he's being patient with us jesus experienced god's justice on our behalf when we found ourselves on the wrong side of justice jesus took god's justice upon himself God's retribution against sin, which was the greatest injustice in history because Jesus was without sin. Jesus, the true righteous sufferer, took God's justice on himself. The only one who ever deserved to have his prayers answered gave up that right to ensure that we would always have an audience with God in the New Testament, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus went to the cross, he asked God to remove this cup from him. In other words, that he wouldn't have to go through with it. He asked his heavenly Father for exactly what he wanted because he knew who he was praying to and who he was. He deserved to have his prayers answered, He deserved to not have to experience God's judgment, and yet he chose to do it for our sake. He gave up his rights. So before we can pray like the widow, we have to look to Jesus' death where he experienced the verdict that we deserved. And now because of Jesus, we can be God's chosen ones. In verse seven, will not God Give justice to his elect, to his chosen ones, who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. In Jesus, we see God's proof that he is in it with us, and he is not asking us to do anything that he himself did not do. Jesus did not have his prayers answered in the way that he asked. So how can we have this faith? How can we approach God with this kind of persistence? Like in verse one, it says, how can we not lose heart? An obvious lingering question for many of us are what about the things that we pray for that are so clearly good but are still unanswered and now impossible? What about the things like Jesus's prayer in the garden to be taken out of suffering? What's the sense in being persistent like the widow when it seems like God's answer to our prayers have been an emphatic no? All of us can think about something that we have repeatedly prayed for that has been given no clear answer or more difficult still maybe can no longer be answered in the way that we were praying for. A loved one who has passed away, perhaps. For me, it's the reconciliation of my parents. Many of you know that my parents divorced a long time ago and my mother is now far from God and we've been praying for her for over 10 years. How is it not possible How is it possible to not lose heart after this? The one thing that kept gnawing at me from this story, why does the widow continually go back to the judge when she knows that he has no interest in justice? So we now understand why we would have the motivation and the encouragement to keep going back to our heavenly father who loves us so much that he gave his son for us. But why would the widow keep going back when she knows that the judge couldn't care less? It is dependence. She knows that the judge is the only one who can give her justice. It cannot be achieved by any other means. And she has exhausted all other possibilities. So now she has this dogged determination in the amount of times that she goes to him and in the way that she goes to him. She cries out day and night, not in irrational desperation. It is very rational. It is very realistic. After all, it is the judge that she's going to That's the way things go, the judge gives justice. And it doesn't even say that she has faith that he'll change his mind. It's clear that this is her last resort and the only possible means of justice. So she has this like insane focus, like she has nothing left to lose. No one is going to plead her case for her. She was out of options and her life depended on it. Only when we know that our greatest desires and our deepest longings can only be satisfied by God will we not hesitate to go to him repeatedly and stop trying to satisfy these longings through every other means possible besides him. Author Francis Anderson says it this way. Hand the matter over completely to God, more trustingly, less fretfully, and do it without insisting that God should first answer all of your questions. This is hard. Some of you, I know, are holding back from trusting God because you are demanding that he first must adequately answer all of your questions. And what we need to understand is that by doing this, we are sitting down in the chair of the judge. We are saying to the judge, plead your case to the one who created the stars with his words. God, who is a good judge and our heavenly father, does not play by our rules and does not give answers on our terms, but neither does He blasts us and holds us in contempt of court. He graciously comes up to us and he says, you're in my chair. But not just that. In Jesus, he took the death sentence for us. He does not sit down in the seat of the judge until he first takes the death penalty on himself. So in this story, we see that we need to pray like our lives depend on it because they do. And we also need to pray like Jesus' life was given for it because it was.